Okay, well, welcome to the uh, uh, second uh, hour. Our last hour, uh, we talked about enhancing intelligence, IQ. Uh, and I should uh, mention, uh, for those of you that are also interested in enhancing EQ, which is even more important, to log on to audioverse.org and hear my three presentations on that at last year's GYC. Uh, and uh, this year, we're talking about IQ. And today we're going to be, this hour, we're going to be talking about one aspect of IQ that is very much associated with it uh, called memory. And uh, memory actually is the one part of IQ that has more to do with academic performance than any other aspect uh, of IQ. Uh, they all are related to IQ, but this one in particular is critically important. Let's take a look at the steps in memory. The first step is called encoding. Now, encoding is the process of holding information in the brain's short-term memory systems for 20 to 30 seconds. And uh, if you are not encoding, you're not going to be able to memorize. And so you have to have that ability to hold it there for 20 to 30 seconds. Now, paying attention to the material to be remembered is, is, of course, a crucial factor. And so attention is very much related to your ability to encode. People with attention deficit uh, are actually missing often the first aspect of memory, and that is the encoding. And then it's very difficult for them to get to stage two uh, in memory. A lot of sensory information can bombard the brain at any moment, sometimes from all five senses. And in fact, if we were to take a look at the bits of pieces of information that your body is dealing with right now and your brain, it turns out it would be close to a million. Now you say a million, there's not that much going on in here, but yes, the amount of pressure that's on your seat, the character of the cushion that's there, how much pressure is on your foot and what aspect, how much is on your ankle and how much is uh, on your toes, uh, whether your hands are in a folded position or not, uh, whether you can uh, feel the hair across your eyebrows or not. Uh, all of this is going on, the, the, the smell in the room, the temperature of the room, and if we were to add up all of these factors, uh, you're even able to uh, feel the type of clothes that you're wearing and where they're the tightest on you, etc. cetera. Uh, all of this information is going on, but with all of this sensory information, we have to actually tune it all out to concentrate on the important information that needs to be learned or memorized. And that's uh, an important aspect. All these registers register in the brain, but only those with meaning and importance should be selected for placement into memory. You're not going to remember uh, one hour from now uh, whether there was more pressure on your ankle or on your toes on the way you're sitting on this particular chair. And hopefully you won't remember that. Uh, if, if you do, then uh, chances are you're not going to remember some vital aspects of the information that we're talking about here uh, today. So steps in memory, encoding, how memories are formed. We use different ways to process information and it increases the chance that the information will be encoded and placed into memory. So it's not just one way that we want to process the information. Actually using different ways will enhance that. Encoding is enhanced when the information is associated with other information already stored in the brain. For instance, a new face that resembles an old face. 
you're much more likely to remember that new face and remember the name of the individual because it reminds you of someone else. And so when we are encoding, we want to try to associate. And when we can associate with something that we already know, then it enhances our ability to learn more. That's why in the last hour, some of you weren't here in the last hour, but we talked about how the Lord has created our brains to continually improve. And so in reality, the more we learn, the easier it should be to learn more new things because we get to be able to associate it with other things. When information is processed in both visual and verbal modalities, the encoding is detracted from or enhanced? It's enhanced, and so that's why it's good to have the verbal and the image part that's there. Working memory, this 20 to 30 second memory, or short-term memory is important. Sensory images are retained for less than a second, just long enough to develop a perception. If not quickly encoded into short-term memory, this information will immediately decay and be forgotten. Remembering a new phone number long enough to dial it is part of working memory. And <coughs> excuse me, when someone gives you a phone number of someone, if you remember it long enough to dial it, you obviously have working or short-term memory. However, short-term memory has its limits. The average individual has a limit of seven items that can be put in short-term memory. If, it, it, if it's pushed to more than this, then it's difficult. Now, can you remember a number that has more than seven digits in it for 20 to 30 seconds? Actually, you can, but you do this by ways that are called chunking. We'll talk about that uh, in a little bit. And that's why, actually, it's easier to memorize the numbers when you visualize those dashes between them. Uh, and so you're actually memorizing three groups of numbers when you're memorizing a phone number with an area code. And you, when you get it down to three, it's a lot easier to remember than it is seven. But eventually, if you work on it, your working memory can, can get seven of those groups of numbers and you would be able to learn that for 20 to 30 seconds to dial an international phone number, for instance, uh, once your working memory is expanded. Can be increased by categorizing or chunking the information. That's what I just uh, I talked about. Let's see if we can advance this further. Some psychologists consider working memory to be the new IQ because we find that working memory is the single most important predictor of learning. Single most important predictor of learning is what? Working memory. And I either have ran out of battery. Here we go. Working memory allows people to hold and manipulate a few items in their mind, such as a telephone number. Some compare working memory to a box. For adults, the basic box size is thought to be three to seven items. People who have more than that on a mental grocery list are likely to forget something. So if you're doing a mental grocery list and it's more than seven items, you're likely to forget something. That's why you have a tendency to write it down. Since there is this limit, it's important to put in the right thing. Irrelevant information will clutter up working memory. Working memory allows a reader to remember what is at the beginning of the page when reaching the end of the page. People that have trouble with active working memory get lost in the middle of the page. 
Memory training may help improve working memory. In fact, it has been shown to help it. Many people with poor working memory are considered lazy or dim, but with early identification and memory training, many of these underachievers will improve and can improve significantly. Yes, question. Can, if short-term memory impairment occurs by physical damage to the brain, is there capacity to improve? Yes, but not a tremendous capacity, depending on how much damage there's been done. But usually there is some uh, improvement that can still take place. Okay, so the first part of memory is encoding, which has to do with working memory. The second part is consolidation. Consolidation gets into how memories are stored and retained. When encoded information is practiced or rehearsed, or when it has a high emotional content and meaning, the information can be transferred into long-term memory by consolidation. And so uh, if someone gives you the phone number of a, if you're a boy, of a girl that you have a high degree of interest in, are you more likely to consolidate that number into long-term memory? Yes, significantly more likely, and that's, purely because there's emotional meaning. Uh, and so it's easy that way when there's high emotional meaning. But even if it's not high emotional meaning, you can still do it when it's practiced or rehearsed. Much of this consolidation occurs in the hippocampus during REM sleep. And so, uh, or rapid eye movement sleep. This is uh, during dreaming times. And this is why melatonin is important. We talked about melatonin in the last hour in regards to IQ, a very critical element in regards to high IQ. But it's also very important in regards to memory. Sleep deprivation or the reduction of REM can lead to deficits and consolidation of long-term memories. And so uh, this is why uh, it's important to get adequate sleep. And particularly, uh, I talked about the Brigham Young University study, the early to bed, early to rise, 40,000 students more directly related to academic performance than any other lifestyle factor, that early to bed, early to rise factor. But what I've noticed is uh, there are some academies who've learned this, you know, where lights go out at 9.30. Is that just arbitrary or is that for the good of the student? It actually is for the good of the student. And of course, if they get up early uh, and learn, it enhances them as well. But I've noticed that tendency that as soon as they're out of that academy environment, what tends to happen as far as their bedtime? <laughs> yeah, it goes way the other way. It's kind of like, now I don't have to be coerced this way. I can go way the other way. But who suffers as a result? <laughs> it, the student suffers as a result of that. They need to recognize much of what is being taught and some of these centers are actually for their own good. And if they can stay on that voluntarily themselves, they'll be greatly enhanced. Long-term memory is usually, in fact, some people will say always permanent. Uh, some scientists will use that term always. I like to stay away from that uh, term in many respects, so I put usually. The uh, mean effectiveness of retrieving the information may be diminished or lost, however. So the memory is there, but your ability to retrieve it is lost. And that gets into the third aspect of memory. You have consolidation, and the third aspect is retrieval. And we'll see this on, in neurosurgery. You know, you can actually touch an area of the hippocampus during neurosurgery with you being awake. 
and you will have the exact memory of a certain event come and flash before you. Uh, it's there and it may have happened at age 13 and it may be something that doesn't even have a high degree of emotional meaning for you, but it's there, it was stored, it actually did get consolidated. Rehearsing or repeatedly practicing and reciting the information can help to shift information from short-term to long-term memory. And so again, it gets into the rehearsing, repeatedly practicing and reciting the information. Increased meaningfulness of the information also enhances long-term storage significantly. So if there's more meaning to you, then of course that can help as well, and particularly when there's emotional meaning. Third aspect of memory is retrieval. This is how memories are recalled. Retrieval is not simply retrieving a photograph. This is what we think about in a computer, you know, you're, you're retrieving a JPEG image. And it's not that way in the brain. Retrieval is a reconstruction process where various parts of memory are retrieved and strung together in a logical manner that can vary from retrieval to retrieval. And so this is why memory is not always completely accurate. Therefore, the retrieved memory is not likely to be an exact accurate recall event, despite the fact that individuals often strongly believe that their memories are, quotes, completely true. And that is because they're ha it's having to be strung together to different aspects of the brain and different aspects of the hippocampus. Various methods such as cueing can help on retrieval. Receiving part of the information can help in retrieval of the rest of the information. Hearing the first name of the forgotten person can help retrieve the last name when you're trying to think of a name. And this can occur even if you're trying to play a piece that you have memorized, you know, 10 years later if you're a pianist. If you start to play the first couple of measures, you won't be able to finish it because it's not there. Uh, it actually is there, you've consolidated it, but your retrieval process is foggy. And so what happens? You go back and you start playing it again, and as you play it again, you'll actually be able to play another few measures. And then you'll stop, you go back to the beginning again, and as you play some more, then the next few measures will come. And if you keep working at it, you'll eventually be able to play the entire five-minute piece without ever looking at that sheet of music that you memorized five or ten years earlier. Uh, and what's happening is uh, you are cueing. By doing this, you're actually cueing and you're helping uh, that retrieval process. Being in the same emotional state as when the memory was acquired can help in the retrieval as well. And so there are certain emotional states that can help in the cueing process, particularly if you're in the same emotional state as it was when it was cued. Recognition memory is usually better than free recall memory. And that's, again, because of the cueing. And so when it's associated with something, it's easier to cue uh, than when it's not associated with anything, which is the free recall memory. Well, in order to have very good memories, nutrition is vital for it. Physical exercise is vital for it. A number of studies show memory improves with good physical exercise program. Sleep is vital for memory, uh, particularly if we're producing melatonin. And also vital for memory is being emotionally calm. And uh, this is where emotional intelligence uh, keys in and why EQ can have to do with success in life. Uh, when our emotions are not in a calm state, sometimes when we're too happy, too jubilant, 
uh, or the other way when we're too depressed. It, either way can adversely affect our ability uh, to uh, memorize. Memory enhancement techniques. Chunking we talked about where we're putting things together in one group such as three numbers in one group when we're memorizing a number or four numbers. Structuring is also an important memory enhancement technique. What is structuring? Structuring is trying to place keys, notebooks, and other commonly used items in the same place each time you put them away, reducing the chance that you will forget where they are. And so having a structured, organized environment and keeping to that structure will actually help with your memory. It won't hurt it. Uh, and so that's why it is good to have the, the same uh, place where we're going to put the keys or where we're going to put the hotel um, card key, uh, et cetera. Uh, associating, another memory enhancement technique. Remembering two things is easier than remembering one. And we talked about that uh, uh, earlier when we're thinking of a certain's name, a person's name, and associating it with something else. Uh, such as, well, we could, uh, maybe we'll go into some of those here in a little bit when we talk about the seven types of normal memory problems. Well, let's get into that. Seven types of normal memory problems. The first type is transience. That is a memory problem. Transience is the tendency to forget facts or events over time. Individuals are most likely to forget soon after it's learned and as time passes, the likelihood of forgetting increases even more. Some scientists regard it as beneficial because it clears the brain of unused memories, making way for newer, more useful ones. But in reality, if it's something we're trying to learn, it's not useful. Everyone experiences transience of memory. Individuals suffering from amnesia resulting from damage to the hippocampus and related structures have normal short-term memory, but are unable to form new long-term memories for getting information soon after they learn it. And I think that's what you were referring to earlier, the individual that asked about the brain uh, damage. Those people do have short-term memories, but they're not able to consolidate as well, and thus they're not able to put it into long-term memories. <coughs> there is that tendency, however, for everyone to have transient. What are some of the ways to combat it? This is a quote from the pen of Ellen White. Speaking of physicians, who obviously have to have good memories, uh, in order to be even come physicians, but also in order to be good physicians afterwards. She's talking to physicians, they should practice what they teach. What is this? They should teach that by studying after what? Nine o'clock, there is nothing gained, but what? Much lost. Teach and practice that the time can be systematically employed one duty after another attended to promptly, not allowed to lag so that midnight hours will not have to be employed in laborious studies. So what are some of the reasons why midnight hours have to be, we think they have to be obtained in order to, for us to study the material? It's because we've been inefficient in our daytime activities. And so one of the ways in improving academic performance is improve our efficiency in our routine daily activities and some of the other daily activities put upon us and then we won't be forced to use those later night hours which are not going to be near as good. As mentioned, you're going to cut down your melatonin production. Melatonin helps in consolidating those memories uh, and there's some evidence it can even help with the retrieval process. 
And notice this was written uh, letter 85, 1888. So if you want people to obey the 1888 message, uh, this is part of it, <laughs> actually, uh, to have that early to bed, early to rise. Now, uh, when I was in, um, at Andrews University in the pre-med uh, program, uh, I was, at this point, I'd done my freshman year. My freshman year, I took general chemistry and took calculus. Uh, those were the two um, more scientific classes. The rest were general education type things, freshman composition, et cetera. And uh, my second year, I was, in order for me to accomplish everything I wanted to accomplish in my four years at Andrews, uh, I recognized I needed to take organic chemistry. I needed to take physics for scientists and engineers, which is a calculus-based physics. I needed to take quantitative analysis, which was an, ad, an advanced uh, general chem class. And then I needed to take foundations of biology. Uh, and so all morning was encompassed with those classes, and then each afternoon I had a different lab, at least Monday through Thursday. So biology lab was Monday afternoon, organic was Tuesday afternoon, quantitative analysis Wednesday, physics Thursday. And uh, so it was a full-time student. And my pre-med advisor uh, wisely told me, uh, Neil, you know, you're thinking of getting into medical school, and in order to get into medical school, you have to get good grades. And it's hard enough to take one of these science classes, maybe two. Last year, you got by with two. But to load it all up like this is a ticket for a potential disaster. But I looked at my program, and I noticed I couldn't get all of this done that I wanted to do. I was looking ahead unless I actually did this. And so I told him, well, why don't we try it? If I'm not doing very well, maybe I'll drop one of the classes or something, but let's give it a try. Fortunately, uh, in, the, uh, in a religion class that I had taken at the end of my freshman year, I had come across this quote. And I had also come across the quote that uh, two hours sleep before midnight is worth more than four hours after midnight, as far as its effect is concerned. And so I was used to going to bed at 11, 11.30 every night. Uh, and uh, I decided instead I would change my bedtime till 9 o'clock at night. And uh, I would get up uh, at 3 or 4 in the morning. First thing I did uh, was devotions. And I wanted to take significant time for devotions, so at least 30 minutes uh, for devotions, sometimes an hour. And then the rest of the time was studying, but then I also had to do my, get my three-mile run-in in the morning and a good breakfast, and I would make it just on time for my 7.30 class. But my study time was actually limited, not much study time. Uh, but yet that study time, being early in the morning, what are some of the advantages of early morning study? That's right. There's no rock music in the dorm being played at 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and so you can't, uh, you know, you don't have the distractions. Your friends aren't calling you up at 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, I don't think there, you know, if I would have had a cell phone, I doubt anyone would have even texted me at that time in the morning, or at least I hope not. Uh, but uh, so you don't have all of those distractions uh, that are there. Uh, and you can be very focused. And uh, with that, even though I had limited study time, uh, and there were times when I had to um, uh, plan my day that I didn't really 
um, I needed a little more study time. If I really needed to cram for a test, because I also worked as well. I worked uh, in the evenings being a tutor uh, for the freshmen, uh, pre-med students. And so uh, uh, my job was from 7 to 9 every night on classes that I wasn't taking. But uh, with the work and the other things that were there uh, in my limited study time, uh, there were times when I needed to cram. If I did, then I would get up earlier. I would still go to bed early, but I might get up at like 2.30 in the morning. Uh, and that's how I would do my cramming. But at the end of that, uh, that semester, 4.0 in all of those classes. Better than I had done my freshman year uh, with my general ed uh, uh, classes uh, that were there. And so I went through medical school never studying after 9 o'clock at night. Uh, in fact, uh, in med school, they talk about how it's like drinking um, water from a fire hydrant. Uh, in other words, there's so much information, you can't possibly learn it all, so you have to try to learn as much as you can. Uh, and so many of my classmates would stay up all night. They'd drink caffeine, have Dr. Peppers going all night so they could stay up and try to cram as much as they could. And tests in medical school tended to be on Friday, so that way you could crash on the weekend and your weekend was just gone as far as trying to catch up from all the sleep. And so many students did that. And 8 or 8.30, I'd be waving bye to them and they'd be saying, you're crazy. You know, you don't have this material learned. They had realized I didn't have it any more learned than they did. Uh, but uh, yet, when it came to the academic performance time at the end of the test, my scores were significantly higher than any of those who had stayed up <laughs> all night. Uh, and, uh, and so, when we follow the Lord's plan, it does work, even in regards to memory. The second aspect of a memory, normal memory problem is absent-mindedness. Absent-mindedness, this occurs as a result of the lack of close enough attention to what needs to be remembered. An individual may lose a set of keys simply because he or she did not focus on where they put it in the first place. In other words, they had a problem with structuring. The brain does not get a chance to encode the information securely will be another reason. And so if there are distractions in the learning environment, uh, then you tend to have absent-mindedness. And that's one of the reasons why you want to keep the distractions to a minimum. Absent-mindedness also involves forgetting to do something at a prescribed time, like taking medicine or keeping an appointment because of lack of focus on things that can serve as cues or reminders. And so having those cues or reminders around can be helpful as well. A third memory problem is blocking. Now, what is blocking? You know that you know it, but you just can't think of it. Someone asks you a question, and the answer is right at the tip of your tongue. But you can't say it. The temporary inability to retrieve a memory is blocking. Now, blocking occurs when memory is properly stored within the brain, but something, usually another memory similar to the one you're looking for, but one that is so intrusive prevents you from accessing it. Fortunately, research shows that people are able to retrieve about half of the block memories within a minute. And so, in other words, be persistent on it. See if you can uh, have some cueing going on uh, that we talked about earlier. Uh, see if you can uh, rehearse a little bit there. And within a minute, over half of the block memories uh, will come forward. Fourth memory problem is misattribution. Remembering something accurately in part, 
but misattributing some detail like the time, place, or person involved. So in other words, it's the right memory, wrong source would also be a misattribution. Also occurs when you believe a thought you had was totally original, when in fact it came from something you had previously read or heard but had forgotten about, explaining cases of unintentional plagiarism in which a writer passes off some information as original when he or she actually read it somewhere before. And of course, this is something that good employees actually try to perform on their employer. They like him to misattribute something so that the employer thinks that they were the originator of the idea, but actually it's the employee who originated the idea. But if the employer thinks they're originator of it, then they're more likely to follow through with that and uh, go through uh, those types of things. And so some people actually try to plan for their authority figure to have misattribution. Now in the criminal justice system, misattribution on the part of the eyewitness can lead to the arrest and conviction of innocent individuals. Misattribution also becomes more common with age and uh, that's something that tends to occur uh, more with age. Then there's suggestibility. Suggestibility refers to false memories that you develop because someone or something gives you some key information or a suggestion at the same time that you're trying to retrieve a memory with the suggestion fooling your mind into thinking it's a real memory. What's an example of suggestibility? Imagine you saw someone fleeing from a car as an anti-theft alarm was blaring. You didn't get a good look at the thief but another person on the street insisted that it was a man wearing an orange shirt. Later, when the police show you photos of possible suspects, you're confused until you see a man dressed in an orange shirt, then you point to him. That's suggestibility. And it's, of course, it can cause significant problems. Suggestibility is the culprit in memories that adults have of incidents from their childhood that never really happened. Studies have demonstrated that many children experience it when asked to recollect alleged incidents of sexual abuse. Several studies with preschoolers indicate that suggestive questioning by the police or other adults can lead children to assert that certain events occurred when in fact they didn't occur. And don't believe the, the falsehood that children won't or don't lie uh, as well. Uh, or that their memories are clear. Uh, children actually tend to have even more uh, memory problems sometimes than adults do. Then another memory problem is bias. Bias is the belief that memory works like a camera recording what you learn with complete accuracy. That's actually not bias. The, the belief that memory works like a camera recording what you learn with complete accuracy is actually a myth. Memory is filtered by personal biases, including experiences, beliefs, prior knowledge, and even the individual's mood at the moment affecting how those memories are encoded within the brain. The previous factors can also influence what information is actually called up when an individual attempts to recall a memory. Most interesting examples of people's recollections of their romantic relationships was a study done recently. In one study, couples that were dating were asked to evaluate themselves, their partners, and their relationships initially, and then two months later. During the second session, participants were asked to recall what they had said initially. So it was actually a test on memory. 
The people whose feelings for their partners and their relationships had become more negative recalled their initial evaluations as more negative than they really were. On the other hand, people whose feelings for their partners and their relationships had become more loving recalled their initial evaluations as more positive than they really were. Again, bias in regards to memory. Then the last memory problem is persistence. Persistent memories of traumatic events, negative feelings, and chronic fears are also types of memory problems. Individuals with depression and those with PTSD are especially prone to having persistent, upsetting memories. Persistent negative memories can fuel a vicious cycle of increasing depression, while flashbacks which are persistent intrusive memories of the traumatic event are a core feature of PTSD. Research has shown that persistent memories depend on the activation of those parts of the brain that respond to fear, anxiety, and emotionally charged information. Many people learn to control persistent memories through therapy that helps the patient learn gradually to envision the traumatic incident without the intense fear, eventually lessening the, lessening the PTSD symptoms. There's also been a lot of other studies on persistence as well. It turns out if you've had a very traumatic event occur, and I'll just give you an example of one that occurred in a patient of mine. Uh, it obviously would be extremely traumatic, but uh, she had a very loving relationship with her 20-year-old son who was living in another apartment. And uh, he didn't come to work that day. She called him, didn't answer. And so she goes into his apartment. She did have a key to his apartment and goes in and finds him dead in bed. Uh, obviously extremely traumatic. She calls 911. They're working on him to try to restart his heart and all of that. Of course, they can't get it going. He's already cold. Uh, and uh, she um, ends up in the emergency room totally beside herself. It was her only biological son. Um, and uh, she started, she was really trying to remember how everything was in the room, et cetera, and you know, trying to find out was he killed? You know, she had no idea how in the world he died. Was he killed? Was he put in there? Was he whatever? Uh, and uh, she kept reliving what she had done, what, the, what she saw the paramedics do when they came in. Uh, and uh, it kept being uh, to the point where it was definitely going to go into the PTSD line of things. Uh, what happens when you have those type of events and you're continuing to try to relive them in a way, she was trying to relive them for memory reasons so that she could tell the police everything. Uh, it's actually better to as calmly as you can, like a journalist would, just write down the event as a journalist would describe it and then put it away. If you do that, it's much less likely to get into the amygdala area where you're going to actually relive the whole memory. If we put it in verbal language and store it that way, it actually is a very good tool for preventing PTSD down the road. And so this is what they did for the victims of the Oklahoma City bombing as well. Part of the technique was to have them just write about the experience so they wouldn't relive it and it wouldn't become PTSD. Was highly successful in that regard as well. But even if it does go to ETSD, there are some things that can be helpful in regards to that. Now as far as memory loss, there are th things that increase memory loss. Pessimism is one of those things. Those 
uh, with high scores on pessimism tests have a 30% increased risk of dementia 30 to 40 years later. High scores on both pessimism and anxiety scores correlate with a 40% higher risk. And the higher the scores, the higher the risk. And so getting into accurate thinking instead of pessimistic thinking is important. This study looked at blood pressure. High blood pressure is associated with worse mental performance even among patients who have not suffered a stroke and have no signs of dementia. So one of the things you can do if you want to improve your memory, take your blood pressure. If it's higher than 115 systolic or 75 diastolic, there are things you can do to improve that and it will actually improve your memory. Study participants were given several three-minute experimental tasks designed to provoke negative emotions. Greater blood pressure reactivity to these tasks was associated with lower performance on tests of memory and mental performance. And again, that has to do with EQ and its effect on memory. Heart risk factors in midlife raise dementia risk. Each of four risk factors, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and smoking was significantly associated with 20 to 40 percent increased risk of dementia. Subjects with all four risk factors had more than double the likelihood of being diagnosed with dementia compared with none of the risk factors affecting, uh, and they factored in ACE, rage, gender, and education. So watching blood sugars, again, avoiding those high sugar, uh, high simple carb foods, getting on a program where you have low blood pressure, which would include lower sodium, getting the cholesterol out of the diet and not participating in addictive events will preserve memory. Researchers analyzed data from 7,204 men collected in the primary prevention study. The team found that the likelihood of dementia rose linearly as body mass index increased. So the more obese you are, the more your memory is going to be adversely affected, uh, particularly later on in life. After factoring for smoking, blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, social strata, men with a BMI of about 20 at the start of the study had the lowest risk of developing dementia. The risk rose steadily up to 2.5 times greater for a BMI of 30. Now 20, many people would consider skinny uh, and very lean, but it turns out that's, as, that's the healthiest to be as far as brain performance is concerned. Then there are some nutritional factors that affect it. Folate increases the risk of, of I should say lack of folate increases the risk of memory problems. A diet with folate levels at or above the RDA is associated with a lower risk of Alzheimer's. Dr. Corrata from University of California, Irvine, analyzed prospective data from a Baltimore study, completed a seven-day dietary record, and were then followed for 9.3 years as part of that study. And the average baseline age of the study participants was 69. After adjusting for age, gender, education, and caloric intake, total intake of folate, B6, and E were associated with decreased risk of Alzheimer's. Now there's something that will help you even now, instead of preserving memory, can help you now, and that is omega-3. Omega-3 induced hippocampal effects is a tenfold rise in the production of transthyretin. Transthyretin is vital to long-term brain health by scavenging up or rounding up something called amyloid beta protein, the compound that accumulates and tangles in Alzheimer brains. By gathering up these abnormal proteins, TTR is believed to prevent the damaging amyloid tangles or aggregates, thus potentially staving off dementia. And other brain protective biologicals like ginkgo biloba also increase TTR. It's one of the reasons that ginkgo can help with memory. Now these are the foods, the fish foods high in omega-3. This is how most Americans get their omega-3 is by fish, but not all fish are high in it. You can see drumfish, tuna, rainbow trout, freshwater bass, 
salmon is quite high in it, herring, halibut, shad fillet, and Atlantic mackerel. These are the 10 top sources of omega-3 in fish. And there's something characteristic of all of those fish. Do you know what it is? No, not all of them are freshwater. Atlantic mackerel isn't. Salmon actually isn't always freshwater either. Uh, cold, not necessarily. There's some uh, fish that are high in omega-3 and warm, but you tend to get more cold, you know, more omega-3 from cold water fish because of the seaweed in the cold water tends to be higher in omega-3. Well, fish don't make their own omega-3, they get it from plants of the waters. But the one thing characteristic of all ten of them is they all have fins and scales. <laughs> all of the fish that are high in omega-3 are the clean fish, the unclean fish are not good sources of omega-3. Fish, several generations ago, was a very healthy food. It's not that healthy today, and it has to do with biomagnification. <clears throat> Clear Lake, California, I actually uh, uh, flew from Ukiah to Sacramento about three weeks ago, and uh, that pathway takes you right over Clear Lake, a beautiful lake there in a more rural setting in California. How many of you have been to Clear Lake in this audience? Quite a few of you. Uh, it really shouldn't be called that anymore because of uh, what's in it. DDD, 0.02 parts per million. Phytoplankton, 5 parts per million in, in Clear Lake. Herbivores, fish that eat the phytoplankton, 40 to 300 parts per million. And the carnivorous fish, up to 2,500 parts per million of DDD. How did DDD come about? They had problems with mosquitoes in Clear Lake, so it was an insecticide they used against the mosquitoes. But whatever is a toxin in the water tends to be concentrated a thousand to a million fold in the fat of fish. And uh, that, of course, can adversely affect mental performance. In fact, our own EPA tells people to start avoiding fish now as a result of all the toxins, and particularly for those who are pregnant or might get pregnant, they're stating nearly all fish and shellfish contain traces of mercury, which is true. Mercury is one of those toxins that didn't used to be in fish that's present to a large degree. And in fact, the mercury levels in fish eating are so strongly related that often that's all researchers will look at, how much fish you're eating, <coughs> and be able to accurately predict how much mercury is in your body. The way to avoid this is by eating plant foods that are going to be much lower in these toxic items, if, if any at all. Almonds are a good source of omega-3. Spinach is an excellent source of omega-3. Green soybeans are an excellent source. Mature soybeans are not. Soybean oil is a good source. Wheat germ, if you're eating white bread, you're not getting the omega-3. You want to be getting the whole wheat bread. Black walnuts are a good source of omega-3. English walnuts, higher yet. Have you heard of this source? Chia seeds. They're selling like crazy in America today because they're high in omega-3, they're tasty, they can actually be part of a weight loss program as well. Uh, and uh, very high source of omega-3, almost as high as flaxseed uh, in omega-3. And uh, by eating these plant foods, you can get more omega-3. We would also recommend, we've had people with memory problems. Uh, one of the individuals that I saw just a couple of months ago. Uh, we put them on not only these foods, but also the foods that have two other types of omega-3 compounds, DHA and EPA, which you can get from the seaweed or you can get in supplements that come from the plants of the waters. 
And if you get on a balanced form where you have DHA and EPA in adequate amounts, 1,000 milligrams a day, it can significantly enhance your ability to memorize material. Uh, it can significantly uh, help uh, for those who are just average IQ of raising them up to a much higher IQ amount. In fact, I didn't mention this earlier, but studies are showing how high the IQ your child is is directly related to how much omega-3 the mother is consuming at the time that she becomes pregnant and for that nine months. And we would recommend if anyone is having a baby that they make sure they're getting not only the foods that I mentioned there, but getting the DHA and the EPA as well. It will significantly enhance the calmness of your baby, uh, the emotional intelligence of the baby, and the IQ. Folate, as I mentioned, is also associated with memory. You need at least 400 micrograms a day. This is what the RDA recommends. You can see you can't get near enough from steak. You have to eat huge amounts. Uh, parsnips have more, pineapple juice more, fresh orange juice more, peanuts higher, mustard greens are a good source, spinach is a very good source. Spinach is actually one of those mental foods. Uh, navy beans, 255, okra is excellent in, in uh, folate. And then the very two highest sources are lentils and black-eyed peas. In fact, studies show if you get 1,000 micrograms of folate a day, it can enhance uh, your memory. Then B6 is another memory vitamin. And bananas, sesame seeds, sunflower seeds, artichoke, and actually sweet bell peppers are excellent sources, as well as lima beans and lentils, uh, as far as B6 uh, is concerned. This is something uh, that's good to uh, remember, particularly if you're a teenager. Your teen IQ and activity is tied to later dementia risk. Persons who were more active in high school and who had higher IQ scores were less likely to have mild memory and thinking problems when they got older. Conversely, those who were lower on the IQ continuum and participated in fewer activities in high school at a higher risk of cognitive decline. And so if you have the opportunity of going on a mission trip or staying it in your uh, high school and just doing schooling, if you can actually do both, you're actually going to enhance your mental performance significantly. And uh, the more activities that you're involved in, particularly healthier activities, it can actually set your brain up for a, a much higher capacity uh, later on. And so participate in as many healthy activities as you can. Of course, you still want to be able to get physical exercise and get enough sleep. Improving memory, healthy lifestyle, we've been talking about that, exercise, et cetera. Attention is very important. This is summarizing improving memory paying attention and working on attention. If you do have attention deficit disorder, studies show if you participate in a working memory program, there's computer programs that can help you with that, it will help significantly. Uh, exercise will also help attention problems significantly. Remember melatonin, getting that melatonin in the evening, early to bed, early to rise will help. Exercising the brain by as many activities as possible, avoiding that daydreaming, the musing, the fantasizing. When we get in that mode, pick out something that's in your pocket that you're wanting to memorize. Memorizing scripture is also important in improving memory. There's a number of studies showing that once you do this, in fact, it can be tough for individuals that aren't used to it, but if you do this on a daily uh, time, everywhere, anywhere from three to six months, it will start becoming easy. And once it becomes real easy, at past, past the six-month point, your IQ will improve significantly. Your ability to memorize anything will improve uh, significantly as well. 
Participate in exercises of truth and logic as well can be helpful. Uh, for, for instance, learning the 10 cognitive distortions and applying those can be helpful in memory. Also, even theorems in geometry. I think geometry is a course um, that's very good if we're interested in truth because there are absolute truths of all sorts that are mentioned in geometry and then we have to logically apply those truths to everyday living. Uh, and then there are exceptions to some truths, etc. And so we can learn the exceptions as well. In fact, I'm, I'm looking for someone to put geometry together with the scripture in similar ways. You know, there are same types of things where there are absolute truths and then there are truths that have exceptions, etc. Uh, we can actually teach uh, Bible courses like we teach geometry and it could be solidified and really help us uh, along life's way. But those types of courses are very helpful in enhancing uh, mental performance, participating in exercise of truth and logic. As far as memorizing things are concerned, one technique that I learned as well that helped me in medical school, and there are other techniques that can be helpful as well, I would put all of one week's lectures on a very difficult subject and put it all on one page. That's part of chunking and it helps with consolidation. And in order to do that, I would have to write very small but very legible and I would write in three columns on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, but one whole day's lecture would be there. Now it wouldn't be the entire lecture. I would synthesize the important elements there that were test worthy type elements that I would put on there and then I could easily go over that whole week's presentations and the whole week of knowledge base, even in medical school, on one sheet of page and the next week would then be on the opposite page. And so uh, it would uh, be very helpful when you're reviewing for tests or those sorts of things and it really helps with, uh, with the chunking and the consolidating as far as memory is concerned. So. Uh, uh, the advantage is most of you are under 40, so you don't need reading glasses. That means you can read things that are very small. Uh, and so if you learn how to write small and put it on uh, uh, three columns and, and, and really um, uh, consolidate the information and the important material, it can be one of the things that can significantly help you as well. And of course, this has to do with the new covenant. Hebrews 8 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their what? Mind. And write them where? In their hearts. What's the purpose of writing something down? So that you can remember it. That's right. And actually, part of being a new covenant Christian is to remember the commandment that begins with remembering. You know, even the commandments talk about memory. And a lot of people say keeping the Sabbath is the old covenant. No, it's the new covenant because you're remembering. And that was the whole purpose of writing the law in the mind, in the heart. Uh, and actually the Sabbath truth, that's something also that actually helps with memory. My father was an engineer who was not a Seventh-day Adventist, but came across the Sabbath truth after he had gotten his bachelor's in engineering. He was working on his master's at the time. And his only study day, he was working full-time studying, his only study day was Sabbath. And he thought he was, gonna, he was gonna sabotage his whole career because he would get together with all of his friends on Saturday and study, but he looked at the Bible and he looked at what it said and he said, I'm either going to trust God or I'm going to go my own way and I'm going to choose to trust God. 
And so he put all of his studies down during the Sabbath hours. And his friends thought he was committing educational suicide because engineering school at Lehigh University was pretty tough. But despite him doing that, his GPA went up significantly and he graduated far ahead of the friends who continued to study on Saturday. And so Sabbath is actually that Sabbath rest when we partake of it fully uh, can actually be part of uh, that like, like REM sleep can be help a part of consolidating, that Sabbath rest can help us in our logic and our truth and also in our memorization. They shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and iniquities I will what? <laughs> Remember no more. And so the Lord talks about how he's going to actually forget some things that are very worthwhile forgetting. And some of the things that we've done in our life are worthwhile forgetting as well. Uh, but he's not going to remember our sins and iniquities if we remember the law of God and have it written uh, on our heart. Are there any uh, questions or comments about what we have uh, uh, presented? I told you I would have some extra time, and it looks like I will uh, have about uh, 15 or 17 minutes for questions and answers. Uh, not only about memory, but maybe about IQ or EQ, since we talked about IQ in the first hour and didn't have the opportunity for questions. Yes? Right. Okay. Uh, ex uh, she is asking me to explain that melatonin graph that we showed during the first hour. Uh, that first hour shows that your melatonin peaks at about 2 o'clock in the morning, but that only peaks if you're going to bed at 9 o'clock uh, at that time. If you go to bed at midnight, your peak is going to be far later and it's going to be less. And so that was a curve for those who are going to bed at 9 o'clock. Uh, their melatonin peak will occur right up there at 2 o'clock in the morning and they'll, get, uh, they'll be able to double the amount of melatonin output as a result of going to bed earlier. Yes? Do you recommend not engaging in any kind of physical activity before going to bed? Okay, what about physical activity uh, in going to bed? Actually, it's better to have physical activity at some time of the day than none at all. So if you're an the answer would be it's better to be physically active before going to bed if you haven't been physically active at all during the entire day. But studies show the ideal time for physical exercise and mental performance actually is post-meal, particularly about 30 minutes after a meal, 30 minutes after the morning meal, if you were to be able to set it up to have that be your most physically active time, that's the most advantageous. Morning exercise before then is also very advantageous, but not as advantageous. The least advantageous exercise as far as mental performance is right before bedtime. And that is because it takes us a while to simmer down, to have that body temperature cool off uh, before we're able to get the adequate sleep uh, that's necessary. Yes? Okay. Uh, what about melatonin supplements uh, for people that work on night shift? What I recommend, first of all, for the night shifters uh, is that they phase shift themselves so that they're sleeping in a dark environment or invest in those very comfortable goggles 
Uh, we actually give them in our peak metal performance program now, we actually give a, a night light that you don't have to turn on if you are a daytime or you don't have to turn on lights at night to go to the bathroom and it won't suppress your melatonin, it's just very low, it's about one lux or so. Uh, and uh, that's one of the problems of getting up in the middle of the night. If you put the light on very brightly, you're going to shut down your melatonin production for a while. Uh, but for the ones that are working the night shift, we recommend they sleep in a very uh, dark environment, or if they can't do that, get those nice shades that will keep it dark and keep the melatonin going. And then try to stay on that schedule uh, as much as they can, even on their non-work days. And they can make as much melatonin as someone in the, uh, that's working day shift. Uh, by phase shifting themselves in that direction. The, um, the melatonin supplements are not quite as good as the melatonin that your own brain makes. And the reason is your brain is not only making melatonin, it's making three other chemicals related to melatonin that they don't have in supplements. One of them is epithalamin. Epithalamin increases learning capacity. Uh, another one is, um, uh, it's not arginine but it's very similar to arginine um, that is made that produces a, uh, a deep, um, actually puts you in stage four sleep, a very restorative sleep. So we recommend your own brain be producing the melatonin, but if you're having problems with insomnia or something like that, uh, you may want to take a melatonin supplement. If you're going to take the melatonin supplement, don't get the natural melatonin. That comes from cow brains and you want to avoid cow brains. Uh, get the synthetic melatonin and uh, use it under your tongue. Just take about a fourth of it and put it under your tongue and you'll get a lot better melatonin than you will by swallowing the pill. And uh, that can help uh, with sleeping and it might help with mental performance if you're having problems with your circadian rhythms uh, as far as sleeping is concerned. Yes? Okay, does flaxseed have the same antiarrhythmic effects and same heart effects as uh, fish oils? And as far as its effect on the cholesterol and the triglycerides, we know its effect is as good uh, as fish oil. As far as its antiarrhythmic effect, the jury is still out because it hasn't been studied uh, to know whether it's the same. Most of the studies on omega-3 have been done on EPA and DHA, which is present more highly present in fish because of the seaweed uh, that's there. Uh, we do know that um, uh, it does have some antiarrhythmic properties in and of itself, but whether it's the same or not, uh, we really don't know. Yes? Folate or folic acid is a B vitamin. Uh, it's one of the B vitamins. Sometimes it's called vitamin B9. Uh, and uh, it is important for mental function. It actually Im improves three different neurotransmitters in the brain and also helps with memory. Yes? Would you recommend taking something like Udom's Choice for taking in your omega-3s or an omega-6? Or would you recommend just using flaxseed and putting it in a coffee grinder? Okay, what's the best way of taking the omega-3s? Would you recommend supplements? Would you recommend some other form? Or would you just recommend flaxseed and putting it in a coffee grinder? Flaxseed in a coffee grinder will give you a plenty of ALA, which is one of the uh, primary omega-3 molecules. 
Uh, however, if you're talking about really, and it depends on the individual, for most individuals that's going to be fine. But if we're talking about an individual who's having significant memory problems, significant attentional problems, it may not be enough for them to just have ground flaxseed. And they may need the EPA and the DHA. And that's an example of that individual is the one I just talked about a few months ago who was having significant um, academic issues. And as soon as we got them on the EPA and the DHA, along with the ALA, significant improvement in their attentional window. And so some people may need the EPA and the DHA correctly. Now, having said that, I know this is a little complicated. Most individuals, vegetarians, in fact, Dr. Um, Frazier spoke about this uh, in the Vegetarian Nutrition Conference in March in Loma Linda. The average meat eater uh, and fish eater cannot make much DHA from the ALA they consume. So they need to seem to get the DHA and the EPA. The average vegetarian, however, converts a lot of their ALA to EPA and DHA themselves. We can make those two molecules from the ALA from flaxseed. And what he found out is vegetarians who eat no fish often have higher DHA levels than fish-eating um, meat-eaters that are eating fish that are high in omega-3 because their conversion rates are higher. We're not sure why some people are not able to, to convert as much as others. And I think that was the individual I talked about. He was having some mental issues, probably wasn't able to convert as much, so once we got him the direct ALA and the EPA, uh, he did a lot better. And uh, that's something that... Um, can be easily gotten. There's vegan DHA supplements that are widely available now. Uh, EPA supplements are also getting available uh, for vegans as well. Okay, well you've been a very attentive group. I think uh, we're uh, uh, getting you out uh, slightly uh, early. And uh, why don't we uh, bow our heads before we close. Father in heaven, we thank you for the wonderful brains that you created for us that have the capacity for continual improvement and have the capacity for permanent memories that can help us along life's way. Help us to memorize things that are truthful and useful. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.